This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing the best of my Times Radio show. Don't forget you can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, on the Times Radio app. Thank you for all of the mixed messages about the appearance of Zippy on yesterday's episode. Never let it be said that we don't surprise you. Right, coming up on today's episode, why is this lying bastard lying to me? Rob Burley, who's worked in political interviews on TV for years and years and years with Andrew Neil and Andrew Marr and Jeremy Paxman and much else besides. He joins me to take me through the art of the political interview and can you get your interviewee to tell the truth? That's coming up in just a moment. But first, as ever, we kick off with the columnists. Manveen Rana. And someone called Matthew on Times Radio. And we say hello to Manvin Rana. Hello, Manvin Rana. Hello. And this week, someone called Matthew is Matthew Syed. Hello, Matthew. Morning. Nice to have you with us. Uh, now, uh, let's start with... We talk quite a lot about housing, but this is extraordinary. This More than half of adults aged 24 under live with their parents in England and Wales, according to uh, the latest census figures. But also found that more couples are delaying starting families due to economic stress. Uh, the biggest rise is in London. Um, Manvin, how long how long did you stay with your parents? Um, I mean, I don't think it was as bad as it is now, but yeah. longer than I intended to. I mean, I, 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 you really you really have to feel sorry for for young people at the moment. I just think it's you know, especially with sort of interest rates rising, it's just got harder and harder to get on the the housing ladder um, in the in the last few months and. And yet, you know, despite interest rates rising, it hasn't seemed to have had a, a dampening effect on the market. So, you know, prices are insanely high. And, I, you know, I think it's it, they, people are just sort of watching the, the rug being pulled from under them. It's, you know, I think it's just got even harder to, to, to be, you know, start on the housing ladder. And um, uh, even renting, even renting is tough. So part of the reason why I think people seem to be staying at home is to try and save on rent, to try and build up a deposit, either to rent or to buy later on. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's basically the closest you're going to get. To, you know, that's the great hope is yeah. being able to stay at home, save up to the to the point where at some point, you know, decades away probably, where you might be able to afford to move out. I mean, it's really shocking. So, you know, I, I feel I feel bad because I sort of feel like I I was at an age where it was you know it was it was hard, but it wasn't as hard as it is now. Where you know, if you look at sort of post two thousand and eight, 
average wages for people in their 20s and early 30s have risen by less than 20%. But you look at sort of house prices, they've gone up by more than 170%. You yeah. You know, the gap is just impossible. I, I don't know how you begin to bridge it if you're, you know, a young person trying to get on the housing ladder now. This is um, there'll be wider social impacts of this as well, won't there, Matthew? You've got more than half of under of under twenty five still living at home. That just fundamentally changes the way they live their lives. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think <clears throat> forgive my voice. I think that's right. Uh, I, I'm trying to, given that you've asked that question, which I wasn't anticipating. I think probably the social impact might might be even more important than the economic one. Yeah. I, I'm trying to think back to the old manorial system, but I think when children started moving out of the family home earlier it completely changed the social dynamics of britain and may have been one of the things that led to the industrial revolution they they have the anthropologists study the extent to which uh, the age at which children leave their homes and whether boys leave before girls and it does have very big downstream impact not just on economics but I think also on social psychology so i i do think we're living through quite an important i should say though that um I uh, when I moved out from my parents' home, I, I missed them terribly, and I found myself going back the whole time. And when I was at university, <laughs> I, I really loved living at home. I, I would I would go home from from Oxford, get back to Reading, the place uh, they lived, and actually, my mum still lives in suburban Reading, and I, I was there the whole time. And um, even when I bought my first place in in Southwest London, at, I think I was about twenty five, twenty six at the time. I still missed my family terribly. And in fact, in different parts of the world, particularly, you know, where my father was from in Pakistan, it's quite common for people to live in the family home in their 20s and even for, for couples to live with their parents. Uh, and it does vary a lot around around the world. Well, there's something interesting going on with the sort of the point at which you become an adult. There's a debate about, uh, you know, lowering the voting age, uh, while also putting up the age you can get married. You know, on the one hand, you know, at what point you become an adult who stands on your own two feet? In some areas, that's getting younger. But but moving out, starting your own life, having your own roof above your head is quite a key mark of that, isn't it, Mary? Yeah, absolutely. And, your life um, doesn't start. Well, I think sort of in terms of responsibilities and... You know, when, particularly when you're talking about voting age, for example, you want people voting who are, are thinking about sort of, you know, the economic impacts of taxes, etc. And you're slightly cushioned from from the fallout of that if you're living at home. Although I think, you know, you now have a generation of people who feel so aggrieved by the fact that they're never going to get onto the, the housing ladder or not for decades that, you know, that has a, a whole other impact on voting voting patterns too. It's really interesting. I think, you know, as Matthew was sort of saying, it, the social impact is going to be fascinating. You know, it sort of slightly changes people's risk register if they're if they're sort of living at home, if they sort of feel kind of cushioned but also um, angry about it. You know, if the, the way the way they uh, approach life is bound to change. And it was interesting, you know, as you sort of said, people are starting families later because they feel like they don't quite have that independence yet. So th- this, you know, we'll feel the ramifications of this for for generations to come, probably. Um, uh, I mean, I'm I'm quite surprised you said, uh, Matthew. The, what was the appeal of Reading? I mean, I'm quite familiar with Reading. Why did you get, <laughs> was it just your parents there? Oh, was there something very specific about Reading? Oh, it was, a, it was my parents and, and my <laughs> brother and sister. It, I mean, Reading, Reading was all right. I mean, it's suburban Reading for mm. the, for those familiar with this town. It's early. 
uh, just off uh, the Wokingham Road. Oh, oh yeah, no, um, well, yeah. In fact, we just sort of uh, fit into John Redwood's constituency. We're, we're, he's in Wokingham, but our little suburb was in, and I stood for Parliament. Yeah. One of the most enjoyable things I ever did, which sounds slightly weird, but... Uh, my father drove around the car and I had a tannoy and, and was sat, <laughs> was I sat on the bonnet or the roof and was saying, vote for Matthew Side, vote Labour. God, I miss that. Um, but it was them more than anything else. And I, I felt a tremendous connection with my parents and with the place I grew up. And I don't think I ever really have, have, have lost that. And I think the strong tradition of, of nuclear families in, in England in particular um, in the later Middle Ages, meant that people, I think, did started moving away from their parents earlier. Adulthood yeah. emerged earlier, I think, in in Britain, um, and perhaps that is beginning to slightly change. I mean, the question is, what do you do about it? How do you recalibrate the relationship between wages and house prices? And the typical answer to that is, we need to build more houses. But of course, I'll be interested to know your view. I mean, you build more houses, but if the population keeps going up and increases the demand, and then you build more again. Um, I do wonder where that eventually ends, because I do think that we have some beautiful natural parts of our country. I don't want to overdo the bucolic wonderfulness <laughs> uh, of it all, but I, I do think that, that you know we, we don't want to just defer the problem by building houses and increasing the size of the population, because that would fundamentally change the nature of the country. Yeah, no, it's an interesting, it's an interesting question. I'm just thinking, you weren't quite, you didn't go quite full Jacob Rees Mogg and take your nan, uh, your nanny uh, campaign, oh, gosh, then, but your dad was driving the car. You <laughs> didn't have a nanny. <laughs> didn't have a nanny. <laughs> uh, but now we're talking about politics. Uh, let's talk about um, whether or not we've reached peak coalition speculation already, with probably eighteen months to go until the general election. Here was the uh, Lib Dem Daisy Cooper and Labour frontbencher Jonathan Reynolds on Times Radio this morning. If I was an athlete. And I knew that in 12 months' time, I had the race of my life. And someone turned around and said, what are you going to do the day after the race? I wouldn't be able to even contemplate that. It's a Labour majority government that we're focused on. And I think we can say that with some confidence. Then you've got uh, Vince Cable, former Lib Dem leader, saying Labour and the Lib Dems will hold serious but deniable talks about entering a coalition in the event of a hung parliament in the next election. Then it's capped off with Labour asking the Tories to deny they were planning a coalition with the Lib Dems, which then number 10 refused to comment on uh, yesterday. Have you already had enough of coalition speculation, Matthew? <laughs> well, um, I, I haven't followed it uh, all the way along, so so I'm, I'm keen to hear more. But I mean, my, 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 <laughs> my, my sense is... Uh, yeah, it was an interesting. It was an interesting set of local election results. I suppose, like most people, I feel that the Conservative national government has. I, I think it's been one of the worst in the post-war period since two thousand and ten, frankly, but particularly uh, since twenty fifteen. And there's obviously an, a huge appetite for change. The, the the strongest sentiment, I think, is we need to get rid of the Tories amongst large sections of the population. Don't think they're completely convinced by Keir Starmer yet. There isn't a huge appetite. I don't think they're entirely sure what he stands for and what his vision is uh, for Britain. Um, but in terms of a coalition, I mean, my, my sense is what you can glean from Ed Davey and Keir Starmer and their respective teams is that they're very similar in their political outlook. It, it, it seems to me that they're not quite as distinct as previous incarnations of the Labour and uh, Liberal parties. I, I was lucky enough to go and have a coffee with uh, David Owen, Lord Owen, a couple of weeks ago. He's written a magnificent book on um, uh, British foreign policy towards Russia over the last 200 oh, yeah. years and had a lovely natter with him. And 
you know, he he the the picture he painted of the distinctive position of the SDP, different party, of course. There is still an SDP today, Matt. You, yes. you probably know this. They're, but, not, uh, they're not very active. Well, they're, they're, not, well, they're, they're active, active, but they're, they're not, not very, very popular. <laughs> <laughs> very, I think they're active, but not big. But I think the the official Liberal Party and the, and the, the official Labour Party are very similar. And I'm not entirely sure that a coalition uh, would fundamentally change what Starmer wishes to do, except perhaps on PR. Although yeah. I can't remember, does I may well support uh, PR too? Um, what do you think, Manvin? Have you been following the uh, the Whitless coalition speculation? Would you like more of it? Uh, always, always want more of it. It's lucky I mean, you're in the right if, place. I was going to say, if we, if we didn't have that, what, what would we all talk about? Um, but it, it is, I mean, it is really interesting. I think with with speculation that starts this early on in particular, you always have political parties wanting to say, we're absolutely not thinking about a coalition because they want people to turn up to the election and vote for them uh, and not sort of think, well, if I vote for the Lib Dems, they'll get in anyway. Um, you know, because you st- you want you do want to be able to get over the line yourself. What I thought was so interesting was that moment where the the Prime Minister's press secretary wouldn't rule out a coalition because yeah. I think they ended up in that rare position where actually wouldn't it would do them no harm to think they might be linked to another party if they were to come back to power because they've just been wiped out. You know, you've had the blue wall in places across the the, the south crumbling you've had seats that have been tory for forever you know in the local elections in particular councils turning lib dem so for them to have even the faint whiff of of a a prospect of an alliance with the lib dems in the future uh can't do their image any harm yeah although although i see they've had to come out this morning and sort of deny all speculation and say that they will be they would refuse to go into coalition with anyone, and of course, um, a, a lot of which I thought was ironic because actually I think most parties would refuse to go into coalition with them at the moment. Exactly. That's also, yeah, put the cart before the horse. It's interesting because there's been this whole yeah. debate about was there too much question about uh, a hung parliament in 2015, questioning Labour about a hung parliament and what a coalition in 2015. And there wasn't enough focus on the possibility of a Conservative majority government because, you know, that's not what the polls were suggesting and all that. So, so maybe we just need to ask everyone about all possible outcomes all the time. Um, Diana's been in touch saying, living at home as an adult, you're all being much too coy. The real problem is sex. No one gets a proper love life, parents or children. So thank, <laughs> thank, you, thank you, Diana. It's obviously, uh, I'm not sure if Diana's living with her parents or has got her children at home, but uh, Bonobi's having a lot of fun. Okay, stand by your beds, pick up your cider. It's time for this. Happy Somerset Day. Who knew uh, that May the 11th was Somerset Day? Well, who better to celebrate with? I've not spoken to him for years, but I used to call him on a weekly basis on it at the Tour Times. From the Wurzels, it's Tommy Banner. Morning, Tommy. Morning. Uh, how are you? Long time no speak. Long time no speak. But, Tommy, yeah. how is Somerset on glorious Somerset Day? Wonderful. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> If I look at one one side of the house, uh, it's blue sky. But if I look at the back side, it's black clouds. So, we'll just stay looking out of the good out of the good window. Um, what are you yeah. doing? What are you doing to uh, to celebrate uh, Somerset Day, Tommy? Hey, not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from talking to me, I've got I've got to be honest. Not a lot. Because I'll tell you what, uh, I speak talking to your producer Andy when when he phoned a couple of days ago. I was sure that Somerset Day was the twelfth, 
because I'd have it on local radio and uh, I'd, I'd put it in my diary for yeah. the 12. Um, <laughs> that they were doing the biggest ever quiz through the BBC Radio Somerset. Oh, yeah, I remember it well. Somerset Sound. And linked to all, all Somerset villages. Yeah. <laughs> so I put it in my diary because they're doing this biggest quiz ever on for Somerset Day, but it's, but it's tomorrow. It's tomorrow. Dear, dear. Well, maybe, maybe it's because it's such a big event now. It's spread over several days. Um, now, Tommy, tell me about the words. How the the Wurzels, what, 50, 57 years the Wurzels have been going? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't remind me. <laughs> but you're still going strong. Somebody said, I was talking about the Wurzels earlier on, somebody sent me a thing you'll play, this is the most Somerset thing ever, in August, the Wurzels are playing at the Somerset Cricket Ground uh, uh, when, the, when Somerset played the Sussex Sharks, but you're playing all over the country all the time, aren't you? Yeah, strange enough, we were doing the, the, the cricket, but last Saturday we did, we were at Ashton Gate Stadium uh, playing after the Bristol Bears rugby match. Oh, nice. All the sports. All the sports. Oh, yeah. Now, we need, um, I'm going to bring uh, Matthew and uh, Manveen back in just to try and uh, um, ingratiate them into the, 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 the delights of Somerset Day. Uh, how, are you, how are you marking it, Matthew? There's so many different different ways to do it. I'm, I, I feel <laughs> slightly overwhelmed here. I, I, what I might do in my mind's eye when I when I think of Somerset, I think of many fantastic things. But if I had to pick one, it would be the the Somerset cricket team of the 1980s. You hope you might remember Matt. They had uh, Viv Richards, Joel Garner, uh, Ian Botham. And seeing them play yeah, in yeah. unison was one of the great spectacles in the history of county cricket. A friend of mine, I think, is chairman there now, Michael Barber. I'd try and pop down at one at one point and watch the new the new Somerset team. It's the a glorious play. grounds and the, the two church spies maybe, you can maybe, see. Maybe you might bring them some luck because they've not won a game yet. <laughs> <laughs> shh, shh, don't talk them down on Somerset Day. Um, what about you, Manvin? How are you marking Somerset Day? Uh, I mean, I'm I'm following Tommy's example by not doing very much, very but I'm good. glad I'm glad I'm glad you've mentioned it because now I obviously will. I'll I'll, I'll have go a in. Think, yeah, I'll go <laughs> have a cider. I'll go away and think Somerset thoughts. I do have this um this amazing book. So, uh, the great Don McCullen, who you know obviously went around the world for decades, covering the most horrific war zones, often for the Sunday Times, but just taking. Oh, yeah. Uh, pictures of like you know these really searing images you know quite often whenever we think of war zones the images we think of will be the ones that he took um but more recently he, he's done in this amazing book um where he's just done somerset landscapes and, and i'll oh, be yeah. honest and they are stunning they are absolutely beautiful and w when i'm having uh, a, a really awful london day sometimes i'll just sort of stare at them vacantly uh, and pretend i'm somewhere See, else people so forget they all think maybe it's i'll do that but just sit and stare at your somerset book now tommy i'm gonna stare at somerset uh, Ma tommy matt's been in touch from nottingham he says this bloke from the words all sounds scottish explain yourself tommy very true i'm the only scottish words in captivity <laughs> <laughs> But you, how long have you been in Somerset for? You're, you must be an honorary uh, Somerset, uh, um, Somersetonian by now, Tommy. I think, I think I'm, I must be. I, I joined the Wurzels in 1967. I think you, so, probably, I think you probably qualify now. And your favourite, your favourite Wurzels song, Tommy? My favourite Wurzels song is 
strangely enough, take me back to good old Somerset. Ah. Manvin Marner and Matthew Sider, and you can read the stories we're discussing. Just hit the links in the podcast description. You can catch Manvin on the Stories of Our Times podcast and read Matthew in the Times of the Sunday Times. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is Rob Burley. yeah, Rob Burley was for many years the man responsible for the music at the end of the Andrew Marr show, but don't hold that <laughs> against him. Aside from orchestrating that awkwardness of cabinet ministers nodding along uh, to the oboe bother of the week, he's had a ringside seat on some of the biggest political interviews for more than a quarter of a century. As well as editing the Andrew Marr Show, he's worked with Jeremy Paxman, Andrew Neal, Jonathan Dimbleby, Kirsty Walk, Emily Maitlis, Evan Davis, and now Beth Rigby on Sky News. His new book, Why Is This Lying <laughs> Lying to Me, takes its title from uh, Paxman's declared approach to interviews. It's a sort of love letter to the political interview, as well as charting his career at ITV, the BBC, uh, and much else besides. And Rob joins me in the studio now. Morning, nice Hello. to see you. how are you? I've been good, I've been good. The overall, you're sort of... If there's a manifesto in the book, it's the it's the it's the appeal for a return to the long form political interview. Yes. How long does an interview need to be before it becomes long form? It's a very think? good question. I think minimum twenty minutes, twenty two minutes, but really, ideally, you'd be talking about thirty minutes or so. Mrs. Thatcher, where she did Weekend World in nineteen eighty nine for forty six minutes, which is pretty courageous. So maybe maybe that's maybe that's well, actually let's do forty six. Forty six. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there a risk that actually long-form, regular long-form in political interviews are actually a bit boring? Well, yeah, there will be, a, there will be occasions <laughs> when that happens. But the thing is, what, you know, so if that's, the, if that's the sort of rationale, and probably in TV 
exact terms it might be the rationale yeah. for not doing them, then that's we're sort of putting that first above things like democracy, which strikes me as more important. You know, so perhaps we we should value what you get uniquely from that from those interviews that you don't get from anything else, whether it's a debate or you know any other any other kind of form of accountability. So, what is it that you think you can get from forty six minutes with a politician? Because I, mean, I suppose if you've got the prime minister in the middle of a crisis and you can really drill into the the details of it and maybe find out information in before. Nobody really wants 46 minutes with with the best one in the world, I don't know, Oliver Dowden or uh, Jonathan Reynolds. Well, you know, the, the, the truth is these people, we can, you know, you can always make things seem ridiculous by reference to someone contemporary who seems like a minnow in comparison to the, the greats of the yeah. past, which you just did. Um, <laughs> but um, So that's not really an argument, it doesn't strike me. I mean, if those are people who are currently or seek to actually run things like, you know, the education system or the NHS or yeah. any number, the justice system, you know, these, these are all really important things in people's lives. And, and I know it's a bit boring, but, you know, it's actually really important. And I think we're losing a lot by kind of the abandonment of this, really, in most places. Well, let's go right back to the beginning then. Yeah. Uh, and some of the examples you've picked out in the book. Uh, well, you, you say this is where it all started. This is, a, this is a clip of Robin Day interviewing the then Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, in February 1958. How do you feel, Prime Minister, about criticism which has been made in the last few days, in Conservative newspapers particularly, of Mr Selwyn Lloyd, the Foreign Secretary? Well, I think Mr. Selwyn Lloyd is a very good foreign secretary and has done his work extremely well. If I didn't think so, I would have made a change. I do not intend to make a change simply as a result of pressure. I don't believe that that is wise and it's not in accordance with my idea of loyalty. Is it correct, as reported in one paper, that he would like, in fact, to, to give up the job of foreign secretary? Not at all, except in the sense that everybody would like to give up these appalling burdens which we try and carry. Would you like to give up yours? In a sense, yes because they are very heavy burdens. Uh, but of course, nobody can pretend that it isn't. We've gone into this game, we try and do our best, and it's both, in a sense, our pleasure, and certainly, I hope, our duty. So that was 1958. It was a few years before mm. he relieved Selwyn Lloyd of his duties mm. in the, the long nights. Why is that interview so significant for you? Well, in the first place, it's because, it, although it sounds incredibly tame now, obviously, to ask about Selwyn Lloyd, the Foreign Secretary's future, was seen as deeply impertinent thing to do. You did, that's not the kind of thing you did in an interview with the Prime Minister. You just didn't. Uh, that was newspaper talk. It wasn't something you would, you would have in a broadcast situation. Also, I believe it's 13 minutes. We were talking about length, yeah. which was quite, an, well, quite a significant length, an unusual length. You know, the, the, the classic is a sort of grabbed interview at the airport when the, when the Prime Minister lives <laughs> it's there. A, it's <laughs> amazing the amount of archive, which is just yeah. people arriving, coming and going at airports. With sort of fairy coats saying, yeah. uh, um, anything you'd like to uh, share with the country, Prime Minister? Uh, that's the usual form. Yeah. So, so Robin... Well, he wasn't Sir Robin then, but Robin Day uh, invented something new there. Also, I love it because of the, the supplementary questions about the burdens of office, which I just you know, imagine now someone just saying, if only I could get out of the game. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, um, but they wouldn't say that today, they wouldn't survive it. But, uh, so that was great. But, and, and then it was, that was the springboard to Robin Day you know, becoming the first real forensic political interviewer uh, and one of the greats still. Um, do you think it makes a difference because it was an evolving form both mm. politician and interviewer sort of finding their way through this the world of telly as more people got tvs and they got to see for see and hear from their politicians the first time um is that why it's hard to recreate now because the part of the reason why was so great there weren't many channels yeah. so if it was on well you had to watch it also yeah. we were quite keen to hear from politicians now yeah. there's a sort of like risk you never stop hearing from them 
True. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, this with the cachet of it is, is, is less these days. But, I mean, it was evolving. I mean, that's, that's one of the things I, li- I liked discovering was the manner in which, I mean, quite quickly, you know, Har- Harold Wilson, a few years later, was keen to, to harness yeah. TV. So was Edward Heath. And Edward Heath actually gave, gives a quote talking about essentially being on message in, in the new Labour style sort of 30 years before it was invented by Peter Mandelson, we thought. Yeah. So they were already thinking about quite quickly about how to kind of survive it. Rather than that, what you had there was that moment before the comms guys got involved. They actually just had a conversation. Yeah, had a he conversation. asked a question and he answered it. Yeah, and um, it was really interesting. So, yeah, of course, it evolved in a, in a way that's led us to where we are now. Yeah. I want to talk about Brian Walden, because it's, yes. it's one of the most gripping bits of the book, I thought. Mm. Explain, first of all, so Brian Walden was a Labour MP, yeah. quit the Commons to become the presenter of Weekend World, mm-hmm. and the, the sort of forerunner of really the Sunday shows we know it now. Yeah. But struck up this incredible relationship with Margaret Thatcher, which yeah. you wouldn't think, you know, former Labour MP and then TV interviewer. Well, the, well, the, the important thing to know about him, of course, even though he was a Labour MP, and one that everybody regarded as a, as a star of the future, you know, he's one of those people who's tipped in those, those, those sort of ma- magazine yeah. articles about future Prime Ministers that are never right about who the Prime Minister will be. And he was one of the ones they named, right? Because in the 60s, he was an orator. He's there pretty young in the House of Commons. He's regarded as the next big thing. But internally... He was struggling because even though he joined the Labour Party, he didn't really believe in socialism. He was really a meritocrat. And when he saw Mrs Thatcher, he became Thatcher curious pretty quickly yeah. because he thought, she's speaking my language. She's, she's a grammar school girl. She's an equivalent to me. So he was already sort of sympathetic to her. And then this, this left field turn that suddenly he's, he's thrust onto television really with no experience or real rationale for it. And then his first interview on his very first show is with Mrs. Thatcher, who's then the, the leader of the opposition. And they immediately they're sort of simpatico. They kind of they, we were talking about a conversation. It was a conversation at times in very great detail about policy, yeah. but there was a kind of mutual appreciation of, of intellectual kind of equality. It was quite high, you know, it could be yeah. quite high-minded, really about high-minded. Sort of, uh, theory. They talked about faith and you know motivations yeah. and values rather yeah. than what you're going to do on Tuesday. Yeah, I'll do you favour this or yes or no yeah. answer. You know, it was yeah. so he so he tapped into that, and it was of course it went with the moment, and it's interesting with Thatcher because actually she doesn't just come out there and say we're going to crush the unions. Yeah. So in the seventies, her position is evolving, but between interviews, you see that she becomes more bold, and makes an argument about about what was the dominant issue of the day, which was really the power of the unions and incomes policy and all those questions. And he interviewed her more than anyone else. Yeah. And they became very close. Yeah. Um, but then it sort of culminates. Uh, with this extraordinary interview in 1989. Just explain where we were in 1989. Lawson had just resigned. Yes, so he resigned on the Wednesday or Thursday. I always mix that up. I think it's Wednesday night. And then, um, yeah, that's right. And then um, the, an, an interview with, between Brian Ward and Mrs Thatcher had already been long planned. Yeah. So it was coming up as a pre-recorded... In the diary. In the diary as a pre-recorded interview at the London studios where the, uh, on the South Bank where, where the programme was broadcast from. Uh, and there was, there was no question, really, that she was going to go ahead and do it. So in the middle of what was clearly her biggest political crisis, the loss of her kind of anchor there, Nigel Lawson, uh, she went on television for 46 minutes with Brian Walden. But the interesting thing is, as you say, is how close they were. And just just rewind very briefly. So close, and this is extraordinary, I think. Yeah. That back in 1983, in the, in the general election campaign, Mrs Thatcher's seeking a second term. For lots of reasons, she's very late at night. On on before she's a few days before the the, the, the poll, polling day, she's doing her last election broadcast, and she's not happy with the script. So who do they call? Someone from Sachi and Sachi, or maybe some central office? No, they call Brian Walden and see whether he would be willing to come and turn his hand to to put to writing the the appeal to the country yeah. for a second term, and he does it. When on the same day he'd interviewed her on ITV, uh, you know, in Downing Street. 
And this is, and reading it, you've sort of pieced this together yeah. as, a sort of, as the research of the book. And it's extraordinary because today, this is the sort of thing people think would you know, be outrageous today. Yeah. If you go back 40 years, the, the, the flagship political interview of the time yeah. sits down with the Prime Minister on the eve of the general election, does an interview, and that night secretly goes to help her out writing her party political forecast. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, and and, and has never actually been substantiated yeah. until now. It's, it's, it's been rumoured there's a guy called Ronald Miller who was a very sort of thespian uh, <laughs> speechwriter who wrote The Ladies Not For Turning speech and he put it in his book in the early 90s. But it was only when I spoke to Charles Moore who told me that Brian confirmed this to him in his conversations they yeah. had shortly before his death. So it's it's mind-blowing. But but that's what sets the tone and the context yeah. of what happens so in 1989. that's how close they were throughout that's the 80s. Yeah. It was so close that he... It was an extraordinary conflict of interest. He went and helped Margaret Thatcher write a party yeah. political broadcast. We get to 1989. Nigel Lawson's just resigned as Chancellor yeah. after falling out with uh, Margaret Thatcher's economic advisor. Yeah. Uh, let's take a listen to what happened. Let me put this to you, Prime Minister. It may be the case that in private you will have a lusty argument and you will listen to other people's opinions and that you're only too happy to accept a suggestion if it's correct. But you never come over in public like that, ever. You come over as being someone who one of your backbenchers said is slightly off her trolley, authoritarian, domineering, refusing to listen to anybody else. Why? Why cannot you publicly project what you have just told me is your private character? Brian, if anyone's coming over as domineering in this interview, it's you. <laughs> it's you. You think Hammering so, things out instead of just talking them in a, in a conversational way. Yes, you're very domineering at the moment. It's extraordinary, that. And it was such a, an explosive interview. And actually, it was born out of frustration on his part because he kept saying, why is your, why is your chance for resigning? He says, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Um, and he sort, of, he sort of loses his rag a little bit there and they never spoke again afterwards. Yeah, but one, again, just to rewind a tiny yeah. bit, Matt, is that the morning of that, the weekend of that interview, in fact, the morning of it because it was a pre-record, the Independent wrote, wrote a, a piece mm. all about Brian Walden, saying, essentially, this is the moment of reckoning for Mrs Thatcher at her most vulnerable moment, and it falls to, essentially, a sort of supplicant, a, a Thatcherite uh, who, who can't do the job, mm. Brian Walden. So Brian went into that interview having to make a choice between his friendship with her, his ideological sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's the word? He, you know, he was, Alliance. He was, alliance yeah, yeah, with yeah. her, yeah, and... and and his journalistic ethics. Yeah. By the way, something he got very badly wrong a few years previously. Yeah, yeah. And he went in there, he had a choice to make, and he made the choice. And so when, when she didn't answer the question in the way that she didn't, he wasn't going to let her go. Do you think it makes a difference he was a former politician? Because actually that exchange, with a bit of noise in the background, would sound... You, that could be across the dispatch box almost. There's sort of yes. the, 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 the heft behind his... You're right, yeah. And the way he built the question. Yeah, there's the, there is the oratory there. You, yeah. can, you can imagine him utilising in the commons, yeah, for sure. I think the real frustration that for both of them have in that situation is quite interesting. One is he knows that, uh, the, that this version of her that he's presenting, which is the domineering person, which is the great critique at yeah. this point, he sort of knows that's not entirely true because he yeah. speaks to her all the time. He's going to Downing Street and having a whiskey with her. Yeah. And she knows that he knows that. And he <laughs> say, and, he, and she says to him, why, why, why can't we just have a normal conversation? Yeah, why are you being weird? Yeah, why, why are you yeah, being yeah. weird? <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then because he was so weird in her terms, it's true, they never spoke again. Yeah. Which is, you know, a sad ending because they were very close and, you know, a year later she's gone. Yeah. Let's jump ahead because there's a lot of history to get through. Let's jump ahead to Tony Blair. Yeah. Um, and you've written a, there's a lot in the book about how he used interviews to take on 
his critics over Iraq. And actually, that sort of... Although people criticised the sort of new Labour spin machine, mm -hmm. Blair did put himself out there a lot. Yes. Not least, not long after he became Prime Minister, uh, the Bernie Eccleston affair blew up. What uh, donations have Bernie Eccleston given to the Labour Party and uh, the rules around advertising uh, for uh, the four Formula One. And he invites John Humphreys to Checkers for mm -hmm. a, you know, 45-minute interview. But this is back in 1997. Let's take a listen to this. This is from On the Record. You've been in power for six months and a bit now, um, and you've had a quite extraordinary period in office. I mean, you have been the most popular prime minister since ever. Now the papers are saying that the issue surrounding you is one of trust. Do you believe that as a result of what has happened in this past week or so, you have lost the trust of the British people? Uh, no, I don't believe that. Uh, and I hope that people know me well enough and realise the type of person I am to realise that, that I would never do anything either to harm the country or, or anything proper. I never have. I think most people who have dealt with me think I'm a pretty straight sort of guy, and I am. A defining uh, quote which hung around his neck for such a long time, pretty straight kind of guy. Did something change in the the long-form political interview in those new Labour years? Or is that people trying to pin something on Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell that's a bit unfair? Well, they, they, they were successful in changing it, you mean? Yeah. Well, actually, I mean, like you said, they put themselves out there. Yeah. Um, I mean, in fact, and Alistair Campbell's attitude to that moment was, we can't go on Frost, which, by the way, Blair would rather have done, because David Frost would have been a, a, a more comfortable ride. We have to take a kicking, he thought, from John Humphreys on, on the record. Yeah, that's interesting. So they went and did that for that reason. He, he has to be seen to take a kicking. What really fascinates me about that interview, actually, is the effectiveness of that line. Because the country wasn't ready for him not to be a straight kind of guy. Yeah. He'd just been elected. After all the sleaze of the Tory years, we'd had you know, 18 years of Tory government. It was like this new, the, the new dawn had broken, had it not. The last thing people really wanted to believe, that soon afterwards, that he's just like all the rest of them. Yeah. They still wanted to believe that it was a fresh face and that he was going to do things differently. Despite the evidence that around, without going into all the detail, you know, he was kind of banged to rights on that question yeah. about, about covering up when they were doing this, that and the other around the story. Um, but he kind of got away with it because everyone wanted him to get away with it. Yeah, and it's a soundbite which, which rang true to the public's mind at the time. At that time. Uh, still joined by Rob Burley talking about his book, Why Is This Lying, Lying to Me? Uh, it's all about the big political interview. And in fact, the title of the book comes from something that Jeremy Paxman uh, once said, although he said he was quoting someone else and he insists that he didn't always approach every interview like that. But uh, let's take a listen, Rob, to one of uh, Jeremy Paxman's most famous interviews with Michael Howard in 1997. It's a you, quite you straight put, yes or no question. And I would, I would give you an Did answer. Did you threaten to overrule him? I discussed this matter with Derek Lewis. I gave him the benefit of my opinion. I gave him the benefit of my opinion in strong language. But I did not instruct him because I was not uh, entitled to instruct him. I was entitled to express my opinion and that is what I did. With respect, that is not answering the question of whether you threatened to overrule him. And on it went 14 yeah. times, mm -hmm. did you threaten to overrule him? This week we've had a bit of uh, asking Keir Starmer, would you go into... Yeah. Coalition with the yeah. Lib Dems six times in one interview, seven times in another interview. Is there, a, is there a right number of times to ask the same question? That's good. That's a, that is a good question. I mean, actually, Andrew Neil says it's three. Three is enough. Yeah, three is enough. By that point, you've established they're not going to answer it. I think Jeremy had uh, probably adhered to that unwritten rule. And what I love about the interview is, is that in, with Howard is that, um, <laughs> you know, it's like there is an unwritten rule, which is, after a bit, I'm going to stop asking you the question because we're going, because you've just, you're not going to answer it, and we're just going to move on, and that's that's fine. We're we're both happy, but Jeremy just thought, you know what? 
I'm not going to just not going to. I'm just. I've had enough. Wait, I, I don't know. If I, he, I, he said I, I was fed up with the BS. I will say. Yeah. Uh, he was just fed up at that point. He was just sick and tired of it. He's often said, "Oh, I, I carried on doing the questions because the, the next item wasn't uh, wasn't ready or something like that," which is not true. It was. It was. If you watch it, it doesn't make any sense as an as a reason. He just was sick of it. Yeah. And and, and he decided that rather than play the game. He would do that. And Howard was apparently livid afterwards and understood how damaging it was. And I suppose there is a, there is a subtle difference between the would you go into coalition? Because Kiss, Dominic and Riley say, well, I'm focusing on a majority. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was on a question of fact. Did yes. you overrule? Did you threaten to overrule him? Yeah. I didn't overrule him. Yeah, but did you threaten to overrule I didn't overrule yeah. him. Even though the details of what all that was about it sort of lost to, lost to history. The, the, the moment yes. that Michael Howard, and it haunted him, and then even when he came back as Tory leader. Um, let's hear to, from a slightly, this was an interview you worked on with Jeremy Paxman. Yeah. Uh, explain what it was like going into Jeremy Paxman. You were working at Newsnight as a producer. Yeah. You've got to go and tell Jeremy Paxman that he's going to interview Russell Brand. He wasn't very pleased about it, Matt. Uh, <laughs> his question was, you know, was just Russell who and then why? And I, would, I made a stab at this when I said, you know, he's written a piece in The New Statesman. Has he? <laughs> Is it any good? Well, well you know, he's, very, he's quite popular with uh, younger audiences. Is he? And he was, a, he was a sort of political thing in 2013. He Obviously, was. then went on to interview uh, Ed Miliband at the 2015 election. Let's just take a listen to uh, Jeremy yeah. Paxman's encounter with Russell Brand. You've spent your whole career berating and haranguing politicians, and then when, like me, a comedian goes, yeah, they're all worthless, what's the point in engaging with any of them? You sort of have a go at me because I'm not poor anymore. Well, no, I'm, I'm not having a go at you about that. I'm just asking you why we should take you seriously when you're so unspecific. Why wouldn't I be facetious? Why would I take it seriously? Why would I encourage a constituency of young people that are absolutely indifferent to vote? Why would we? Aren't you bored? Aren't you more bored than anyone? And you have been talking to them year after year, listening to their lies, their nonsense <laughs> and on he went yeah. now, the interesting thing about that is is that Russell Brand's not playing by the rules of a Newsnight yeah. interview no well he, I mean he's not a politician he's got nothing yeah. to, he's got nothing to offer in concrete terms no real solutions his argument would be that I'm you know I'm te I'm just the person saying fire in the theatre you know there is, yeah. there, there is a fire and so I don't necessarily have all the answers about that but, yeah. I'm, but I'm saying it but it's interesting because Jeremy ends up in a weird position in that interview because he sort of ends up being an advocate for the sort of establishment <laughs> he, sort of, he asks him to sort of have a plan and to sort of uh, engage and vote and, it, and actually to be honest Brand does quite well Brand who's you know I mean I think he, I think I say in the book he he was flirting with the conspiracy theory and, and at that he's time he's full on since he's since yeah. sort of uh, consummated that so you know that that's what he's like but it was an interesting moment but I mean the amazing thing is twelve million people watched it on YouTube wow so you know and that was quite twenty thirteen that was quite early for that sort of yeah. News night thing going viral. Yeah, and um, Ian Katz, you know, very, the editor at the time, very much wanted to do, to do it. Jeremy, as I said, was very sceptical. But I guess it sort of was, was vindicated because it, people wanted to hear someone who actually expressed an opinion, wasn't tramlined. It is part of the problem uh, with the political interview now, and particularly, let, in fact, let's move on, we'll do Boris Johnson in a sec. That Boris Johnson is a bit like Russell Brand, in that he doesn't play by the rules of the interview. If you just... Yeah. You know, if you just say, well, I'm just going to talk about something else, or I'm going to make a joke, or I'm yeah, going to yeah. just undermine the entire premise of this. Yeah. You know, unless both sides are taking yeah. part in the same sport. Yeah. You know, if, if, the, yeah. if the interview is playing tennis and you just start waving around a hockey stick, well, yeah. then the whole thing sort of falls apart. Yeah, but you, but you know, it's your stadium, right? Yeah. You know, you, 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 <laughs> even more complicated sport. <laughs> I know, but you know, you need yeah. to, you need to pull it back. And actually, I, mean, I don't know if you're going to play a clip from that interview. Yeah, let's have a listen to this. Is yeah. Andrew Neil interviewing Boris Johnson during the 2019 Tory leadership contest? So, how would you handle? You talk that. about Article Five B, 
paragraph five. 24. Article 24. Get the detail right. Five. Get the yeah. detail right, Andrew. It's how, Article 24, paragraph 5. And B. how would you handle uh, paragraph 5C? I would, res I would confide entirely in paragraph 5B because that is. But how would you get around what's in 5C? I would confide entirely in paragraph 5B, which is you know enough for our C? purposes. No. I thought you were a man of detail. <laughs> And that was, Boris Johnson thought he'd got one over on Andrew Neil by talking yeah. about paragraph 5B in the Brexit yeah. negotiations. And for a moment it looked like he had, but Andrew Neil also knew what was in 5C, and oh, Boris yeah. Johnson didn't. Absolutely. So when this was, this was all planned, obviously, yeah. to try and stop him doing what, what you describe, yeah. you know, by taking him somewhere that he, that he thought he wanted to go. Because when he saw 5B there in the, ahead of him, he thought, oh, that's a lovely thing. I like going towards 5B because I know yeah. about 5B. But we, and so we'd already thought, well, he's never going to know what 5C is. So if we can get him down the road to 5B, the worst that can happen is he knows what 5C is. That's unlikely. So that was the plan. And he, 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 not only did he do it, but he did it with extraordinary hubris. You know, get the detail right, Andrew. Andrew Neil being told to get the detail right by Boris Johnson is something. But isn't that a sort of a gotcha moment? No. It's, a, it's, a, it's a just trying to make Boris Johnson look silly no, rather than anywhere help. Because the, list, the viewer or listener doesn't no. know what 5B or 5C is. No, because, because, he, well, because he was regularly using this, this, what sounded like an impressive technical grasp, yeah. uh, to, to say that it will be fine if there's a no-deal Brexit. Okay? Yeah. Pretty significant question that matters to people. And so to avoid actual engagement in reality, he had a set answer yeah. that he thought he could deploy. So by, uh, you know, of course, it, it's, it's, a, it's a joyous moment of gotcha, I suppose, but actually it's a substantive point, which is, you know, if, you, you, you don't, if, you, if, you're, if you're presenting to me the, argue, the idea that you're a prime minister who grasps detail and knows what's happening with the GATS agreement, and that's why we can trust you yeah. to be the prime minister, then you're pulling the wool over our eyes. And that's revealed on that clip. One thing I thought, um, reading the book, and it was fascinating, the, the sort of evolution of, of the interviewer and the interviewee, it's actually the long-form political interview does exist today, but it's in podcasts. It's Matt Ford doing, you know, the, uh, the what's it called, the political party, yes. or Nick Robinson, or uh, Past Imperfect. But there's sort of, that actually TV has become yeah. aggressive and, you know, in the constant grinding out of news lines, yeah. which actually becomes much less informative. But really, podcasts have become the place where the long-form political interview lives. Yeah, well, they're not, although they're, they're, the tone is very different, isn't it? There's not much jeopardy there. It's very much a kind of... A gentle chat, but no, I agree. And I, I think that, I think that's a really heartening yeah. thing, which suggests to me that people like depth. Actually, yeah, they don't just want superficial stuff. And of course, it's all a bit self-fulfilling because if you have short interviews that are, that don't happen as often because politicians don't make themselves available, yeah. then people want to try and be Jeremy Paxman in seven minutes on the news channel, you yeah, know, or whatever, um, and then it just becomes a kind of spectacle, um, and not a very good one. So you know what we need to do is on television return to that. Look, I maybe. It's maybe a forlorn attempt, right? <laughs> we need to return on television to long-form political interviewing because it's the best way of establishing the credibility and the character of the people that want to rule us. Finally then, I mentioned at the beginning that you were responsible for the awkward music at the end of Andrew Mars. You say uh, awkward. <laughs> um, was there ever anything you put on which you wish you hadn't in that musical slot? In the musical slot... No, they were all great. You all thought they were great. Yeah. So what we thought we'd do is we play out this uh, this chat. <laughs> is it the Wurzels? Uh, no, it's not the Wurzels. <laughs> this is um, a flautist, which is about the, the, <laughs> the most ridiculous thing we thought we could play out with. So in keeping with your time on the Adjabar show, uh, Rob Burley, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, man.
Right, that is enough of that. Uh, that was Rob Burley, and his new book is called Why Is This Lying to Me? It's out today. It's out today. Out you can today. Buy it, yeah. In all good bookshops. Yeah. And you can listen to this music. This is the flautist Herbert Laws in his band Live at the Los Angeles Public Library. Should have booked this guy. Oh, there's a bit of fiddle now, isn't there? This is very Andrew Miller. You can picture, like, David Liddington uh, <laughs> sitting, uh, Emily Thornby sitting awkwardly on the sofa. And that's all we've got time for on the podcast today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Let me know what you think. Email me, matt at times.radio. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.